1: Good day. Welcome to New Books and History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are most pleased, indeed honored, to have with us Professor Jeremy Black, MBE. Professor Black is Professor Emeritus at Exeter University. He is without a doubt the most prolific historian writing in the Anglophone world today. And indeed, today we are speaking about one of his latest books, to lose as an empire, British Strategy and Foreign Policy, 1758 to 1790, published by Bloomsbury. Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Professor, why do you commence the book in the year 1758? Most studies of the period would commence in either 1763 or perhaps 1754 or even 1742.
0: Well, I think that's a very good question. I mean, what I wanted to do was to look at the conquest of um, French North America and then the British loss of their position in the 13 colonies and in essence the early start of the Seven Years War, or what in America is called the French and Indian War uh, was very poor for the British in fact it was a disaster and in uh, uh, 1754 5, 6 even into 1757 they're doing very badly Montcalm, the French governor is making great inroads Lastly, at um, um, seven with the failure of the British attempt on Lewisburg that year, so I really wanted to start with success and to set up this antithesis of success and then failure. And indeed, one, I mean, you're absolutely right to draw attention to the chronological divide, because in many senses, what I'm writing about is the strategic and military background to the loss of America. And as you may know, a standard account, you can find it in Hamish Scott's uh, book on uh, British foreign policy in the age of the American Revolution, is to begin in 1763 and to argue that Britain failed in uh, in the Revolutionary War because it was not following a policy of engagement with uh, continental allies Um, and i wanted to as it were broaden the period to so i start in 58 and i end as you will know in 1790 in order to if you like problematize that and that serves two purposes it both makes specific points about the American War of Independence, but it also tries to break down this idea that you should treat 1763 to 83 as a period in British foreign policy and British strategy, and instead looks at a broader period. And by doing so, I'm not only trying to make comments about that broader period, but I'm also, in effect raising questions about the periodization which we see for other periods.
1: Who were the old core Whigs as you employ this term in the book?
0: The old core Whigs was the dominant group in the Whig Party, the governing Whig Party under George the First and George the Second. The most important people in that by uh, the 1750s was Henry Pelham who was first Lord of the Treasury from 1743 until his death in 1754, and his elder brother, the Duke of Newcastle, who'd been a feature in British politics from the 17-teens into the 1760s. And these were men who essentially took forward the political system which had been brought to a great triumph, if you like, under Sir Robert Walpole. First Lord of the Treasury from 1721 to 1742. And they created a Whig monopoly of power, which they then used to purposes essentially of stabilisation. And they were not great imperial expansionists. And they found themselves in the French moving towards the French and um, Indian War uh, with considerable reluctance and hesitation, because Walpole himself was somebody who, he's dead by this period, he died in 1745, Walpole was somebody who'd been very reluctant to get involved in foreign wars.
1: What uh, were, to your mind, the key variables which most influenced British foreign policy in this period?
0: Well, I think that's a fascinating question, and one of the things I would say is there wasn't a... As it were, the equivalent of what we would call a strategic review, or its equivalent for foreign policy. So there is no one document or, docu- or, or policy making body that you can point to. Indeed, there's no such individual called foreign secretary or foreign minister. The two secretaries of state. Um, and the situation doesn't change till 1782, divide responsibility between them for both foreign policy and domestic policy, or the administration of law and order in particular. Um, So there isn't really a coherent foreign policy, and a lot of the difficulty is that it's often subsequent commentators, scholars, trying to make sense of the period and the way in which there is a melange, as there always is, between inherited or long lasting um, assumptions, ideas, um, alignments, and the shock of the immediate confrontation in which issues come out of supposedly nowhere or at least are unpredictable. the Spanish seizure of the Falkland Islands, for example, precipitating the Falkland Island crisis of 1770, or a breakdown of law and order in Massachusetts precipitating a war of revolution in Britain's 13 colonies in 1775 so that in many senses you have an interplay of the two.
1: How important were, say, the king and individual ministers or, for that matter, individual diplomats in the conduct and formulation of policy?
0: Well, again, that's an excellent question. The king senior ministers and diplomats are all important. Diplomats are more important than today simply because of the much longer period in which it takes for messages to be moved around the system and because nobody can get on an airplane to try and deal with a crisis by some form of personal or summit diplomacy. The ministers are important because a very small number of men are having to as it were, assimilate what's going on and consider and then seek to implement responses in situation of great difficulty and without the scale of government of the modern day. And the monarch is important because foreign policy, more so than most branches of government, is actually the policy of the crown. Um, uh, Diplomats are appointed by the monarch, they're accredited to the king, uh, you know, foreign diplomats are accredited to the king. Um, there is, in foreign policy and in military affairs, a role of the monarch that is much greater than, shall we say, in financial policy or, or social policy.
1: Would you say that Britain had what you refer to in the book as a, quote, parliamentary foreign policy, unquote?
0: Well, I think it, certainly it has a for- parliamentary foreign policy. Parliament, not least because you need money voted by Parliament to um, support the armed forces, which are there as the ultimate deterrent. So, yes, um, Parliament is important, and also a lot of what now composes the business of Parliament uh, debates over in Britain at the moment, it would be the health service, social policy, economic policy. These are matters that are much more limited in their parliamentary scrutiny in this period, and in practical terms, one of the major areas for parliamentary discussion is the the armed forces and foreign policy.
1: Uh, How important in the formulation of foreign policy was the commercial mercantile
0: element? Trade is very significant because trade is the basic source of government revenue, but also because merchants are very well represented in Parliament, both with many seats being um, seats of commercial importance, most obviously places like London or Bristol, but also with many uh, merchants also sitting for um, seats elsewhere in the country. So trade is very, very significant and is seen such by foreign powers, and indeed the perception by foreign powers is also very significant.
1: Why, as you put it, was, quote, the direct impact of public opinion on policy limited, unquote?
0: Well, I think the direct impact is limited because um, general elections only occur infrequently. And in the meantime, there was a difficulty in public opinion, uh, A, as it were, becoming one thing, whatever you mean by that. I mean, whatever you mean by public opinion, there were public opinions, I think would be a fairer phrase. Um, how that they would articulate themselves was less uh, apparent than today. There was no equivalent of, obviously, the world of public opinion polls or the world of social media, although there were newspapers, obviously. But also, there was a degree to which ministers, and indeed parliamentarians, both being responsive to the people, but also were very clear that they were not responsive to those they called the mob. So in other words, there was an idea that there was a responsible public and an irresponsible public and the irresponsible public had to be held at bay. Rather similar in some respects to the, uh, the contrast drawn between, as it were, the responsible poor who deserved poor relief and the uh, irresponsible poor who didn't.
1: Can you explain the difference between the so-called blue water strategy as opposed to the Continental strategy?
0: A blue water exponents argued that Britain's destiny was maritime, oceanic and commercial, and that therefore Britain should focus its energies on pursuing maritime superiority and colonial gain. They were very critical of what they saw as commitments on the continent for often what they saw as non-British goals, Some of them related to Britain's allies, some of them related to the monarchs as electors of Hanover, and they argued that these were expensive, often unsuccessful, and therefore entailing Britain having to surrender commercial gains accordingly, as it did in 1748, and also, in a way, non-British, the argument being that a large army was necessitated by these, and that... um, that this was a, uh, as it were, detrimental to the British Constitution. Now, where one's looking at here is both a debate in the 18th century, and I've written about that debate both in this book and in a number of other books, one on debating policy in that period, but also something that is relevant to disagreements among scholars. And I think it's fair to say, that most modern scholars, most, there aren't an enormous number that are interested in 18th century foreign policy, but um, um, those modern scholars who've tended to write on it have tended to be very favorable to interventionism and have argued that this interventionism served British interests and served European interests. And you can see those arguments. I've already mentioned Hamish Scott. You can see it in Brendan Sims's work. You can see it in other people's work. And linked to that, they've argued that the Hanoverian commitment was not detrimental to Britain. Um, Well, I'm afraid I don't see that. Uh, I argued argued repeatedly, indeed, I've also written a book on the Hanoverian commitment, and I've written several books on chronological, smaller chronological periods of 18th century foreign policy. I've argued that this is a misreading of the political debate and the political reality in the 18th century, and indeed, to the extent to which British ministers, as well as British opposition critics, British ministers were dissatisfied with the implications for British policy and public finances of heavy commitments on the continent, of the way in which allies frequently uh, did not do what they'd committed themselves to, and the extent to which both George I and George II, but much less George III, um, actually sought to use British interests and British resources to their own ends. And again, I looked at that in my biography of George II. So you have a difference of opinion among scholars. You can find other scholars who would take different views. I have to say that my range of um, scrutiny of the archives is is greater than those that of other people, like Sims, for example. And on top of that, um, whereas they have often been quite disparaging about the quality of the public debate and the quality of parliamentary debate one can think of michael roberts's essay splendid isolation which really kicked this one off Um, i would argue and i've written a book on the debate by foreign policy in parliament i would argue that you need to take seriously the parliamentary viewpoints that were raised and also the treasury viewpoint it is deeply ironic as i've pointed out in my latest book it is deeply ironic that you have scholars criticising the British government of the period of the American uh, Revolution, the build-up to the American Revolution, criticising it for not spending money on buying alliances with, co- with colonial, continental powers that wished for subsidies, most obviously Russia, whilst at the same time, of course, one of the great problems affecting the British government in its policy in the colonies, and indeed domestically, is the enormous burden of, de- of debt and the fact that taxpayers, including uh, American taxpayers, don't want to pay more money. And I think there is a strong degree of political ignorance here. And and I think uh, among some of the scholars writing on this period, uh, in the sense that they are fascinated with the arguments made by diplomats, and they are really often ignorant about the financial realities uh, which generally don't come into their their discussion, and indeed the, the question of getting business through the House, of getting government business through the House of Commons.
1: Isn't there also a party political aspect? I believe you wrote a book in your reference to the tie ins between the Tory or even perhaps Neo Jacobite Blue Water School uh, ties to the Blue Water School as opposed to the old core Whig who were seen as proponents of the continental uh, strategy?
0: Well, again, that's a really interesting question. There are political alignments. Uh, as you correctly say, um, the Tories tend to be blue water, but the interesting thing is, and this is something I've also tried to focus on, is that Whigs themselves were divided. You have some Whig politicians, Stanhope and Sunderland, for example, in the late 17 teens uh, Newcastle in the early 1750s would both be very good examples of this who are very keen interventionists and wish to spend money like water accordingly but you have other Whig uh, senior Whig politicians I've already mentioned Henry Pelham who's a really good example of this who very much take against that viewpoint now interventionists tried to set it up as it's either us or it's these evil Tories but actually and I have to say some of the more silly scholarly comment by some modern commentators favorable to the interventionists have taken that viewpoint but I have to say that represents a failure to engage with the views of Whig's who were very wary about such commitments. I've referred to Henry Pelham, Sir Robert Walpole would be another good example. Walpole, of course, famously stayed out of war in the mid-1730s, um, opposed and Sunderland, wished to be to keep taxation down, and he was a straight-down-the-line Whig. He wasn't a Tory. So I think that there has been a, some very poor scholarship on the period, which has allowed a a misreading of what were uh, often interrelations between domestic politics and foreign attitudes to foreign policy, but which were considerably more complex. It's interesting, uh, Charles, because it takes us to a more general point which is that this is a commonplace when one looks at foreign policy. I mean, if you look, for example, at the last 10 years in British foreign policy, and you think about how scholars will treat this in 200 years' time, They will simplify the debate between Brexit and Remain, or many of them, the stupid ones who already dominate in the commentary, and they will provide crude accounts which seek to explain both of those and to do so linking them to uh, coherent and defined um, domestic and international viewpoints instead of allowing for the actual situation, which is one of much greater complexity on the whole.
1: Was Pitt the Elder's claim to have a coherent war strategy in 1758, 1759, in your opinion, accurate or not?
0: He certainly had a coherent strategy, but uh, two things. One, it was, to many respects, dependent on happenstance and circumstance. And secondly, he was sufficiently perceptive to realize that he had to as it were, both offer rhetoric in public, but also when he was debating matters both with his other major major ministerial colleague, uh, Newcastle, who by then was first Lord of the Treasury, and um, discussing things often via Newcastle with George II, he had to be, as it were, uh, a bit more cautious. But yes, his essential argument, Pitt's essential argument, was that he was trying to win former opposition figures, both opposition Whigs and Tories, over to a willingness to support the the, um, maintenance dispatch in 1758 and then maintenance thereafter of British forces in Germany uh, in alliance with Frederick the Great. And he was trying to present that as um, a likely way to pursue British interests, uh, transoceanic interests. That was his viewpoint, and it worked in 1758-59. But it was by no means inevitable. It was it would work, and of course, um, in in a sense, he was backing the weaker power on the continent. Prussia was fighting against an alliance of France, Austria, Russia, Sweden, and most of the uh, smaller German principalities. So it was a very high-risk policy indeed.
1: In the book, you make reference to, quote, deep history, unquote. What do you mean exactly by that uh, phrase?
0: Uh, Thank you. Deep history is an idea that interests me, which is the set of concepts and assumptions, often intangible, uh, sometimes articulated, sometimes only articulated in, the t- in terms of slogans which have meanings because they resonate in a political culture. I suppose argue that deep history is, is a broader sense of what some people would call strategic culture. The idea that behind individual policy decisions, individual strategic concepts, are sets of assumptions about how you would wish A society would be so let me give you an example of that Uh, an instance of deep history in 18th century britain would be the idea that you don't have conscription that conscription is something associated with tyranny either tyranny well both tyranny abroad and with unattractive military rule in britain the cromwellian era and that what the british don't want is a large or powerful army so that that is an aspect of British deep history at that period. It's almost something you don't have to write down because it's you get it with the bath water, not that many people bathed in that period.
1: <laughs> Good point. How do you explain, both operationally as well as strategically, the successes of British operations in North America in 1759, 1760?
0: Well, thank you. I think that's, again, very interesting. First of all, as I try and argue in the book, and have tried to argue elsewhere. There was nothing inevitable about it. Um, It was a high-risk strategy, Wolfe's operations against Quebec in 59, and and even after the victory on the heights of Abraham outside Quebec, uh, there was no reason for Quebec's garrison to surrender. And on top of that, as, as I discussed, the French then besieged uh, Quebec, and it was only relieved when a British fleet was able to get up after the uh, ice melted and the St. Lawrence the following year. So there was nothing inevitable about the British uh, victory. But um, it was clearly the case that by um, 1759, the British had worked out the logistical, the Uh, operational, the tactical requirements of deploying successfully and using effectively the uh, larger numbers of manpower and naval strength that they had in North America. So partly resources help, but partly it is the learning on the job. I mean, as you know, in 1758, their advance on the major Uh, On the major axis of that year, the Lake Champlain Corridor is a disaster. Uh, And so there's nothing inevitable about being able to have larger resources and use them. Um, It's partly it's a learning on the job. And more generally, that's true of the British in a number of their wars. I mean, if you think about the War of American Independence, um, France comes into the war in 78. There is a major battle, naval battle off Ushant against the Brest fleet and it's a draw it's indecisive the british don't have their decisive naval victory till 1782 the battle of the saints um in the seven years war their major naval victories don't occur till 1759 quibron bay and lagos in the 1740s their major naval victories don't occur until 1747 the battles of cape finisterre so in a sense there is a learning curve um as the incompetent gets shelved, as more, more appropriate uh, tactics come to the fore. And I think that's significant, um, and I think that's certainly important in the campaigning um, in North America.
1: So is that what you mean when you state that, quote, a mixed military strategy, I'm sorry, a mixed military system was central to British strategy and geopolitics, unquote?
0: Um, no, that's not what I mixed there. there I was t- what I was talking about just now is learning on the job. By a mixed system, what I mean, for example, in North America is you get a eventually, it's not easy, successful combination of British regular troops and American colonial troops and to a certain extent Native Americans as well. Just as you have a mixed system in India where you have British regular troops and Indian troops in the uh, regiments of the East India Company Army, and native Indian troops fighting as auxiliaries in native armies, plus the regular forces of the Royal Navy. So that, I would argue, is a mixed system. And in Europe, you've got the mixed system includes, obviously, um, uh, allied and subsidized forces, such as Prussians and Hessians.
1: Why had not the Peace of Paris... Brought uh, neither "quote" peace or harmony "unquote", either domestically in the UK or internationally.
0: Well, it didn't bring it domestically popular. The argument that it was a sellout peace uh, was frequently voiced by opposition figures uh, who weren't really interested in the, who weren't really prepared to accept what a compromise might mean. And it's also fair to say that George III's leading minister of that period, John Third Earl of Butte, was very unpopular. As far as internationally is concerned, the French government was already considering how to overturn the system and have its revenge on Britain before it had even signed the peace treaty. So, I mean, it really was an armed truce. And that really goes on until the of 1770, and the Falkland Island crisis leads to the fall of Choiseul, who's the uh, bellicose uh, French minister responsible, and his replacement in the early 1770s uh, to look at a possible compromise for the with the British, and there is the possibility we could discuss that it has been discussed as to whether an Anglo-French entente could have worked. Um, in 71, 72, 73, but the possibility for that is already gone, I would argue, before the American Revolution comes along.
1: Why do you disagree with Brendan Sim's argument that the UK was at fault, it's not only Brendan Sim's. I think Scott also argues, makes the same argument, that the UK was at fault not being able to secure a continental ally post-1761?
0: I think it rests on a naive assumption about uh, what's politically liable for Britain, point one. Point two, it rests upon false assumptions about what foreign powers would have done for the the behest of or for the benefit of Britain. So I think it's doubly foolish, that argument, both domestically and internationally. And I've, you know, devoted quite a lot of attention over the years trying to demonstrate that in a number of works. And, you know, uh, if you look at both of those books, Brendan's book and Hamish's book, um, I mean, Hamish is the stronger of the two, um, uh, based on more archival work, but both of them fundamentally look at diplomatic archives, they do not look at domestic political archives, and you know, it's not much point saying what you think a government should do, unless you're prepared to explain the process by which you think they would have got the money for it and got it through Parliament.
1: Why, in your opinion, was the Duke of Newcastle and Pitt the Elder, quote, busted flushes, unquote, circa 1763?
0: Well, I think they were. I think they were both men who would run out of energy, run out of ideas, were essentially responding or seeking to respond in a new set of political circumstances as if they were the political circumstances of the early, mid-1750s. I think that's a perfectly common process in politics. A lot of politicians, and this is not unique to Britain, um, a lot of politicians they, and a lot of political commentators and a lot of members of the public develop their assumptions, their ideas with reference to the, um, the needs, the vocabulary of a, of, a, of a particular period and then those cease to be so relevant thereafter. Um, Newcastle uh, overly assumed that foreign powers, that European powers would be willing to ally uh, with Britain against France on British terms or indeed on any terms. Um, And I think that was extremely naive and didn't really capture the developing uh, diplomatic and international system or the already developed system in Eastern Europe. So I think that was a real busted flush. And Pitt was totally at fault in failing to note the enormous pressure financially that Britain was under and the way that his, uh, as it were, sort of pressure for a continued confrontation with France needed to be rethought uh, in those terms. I mean, it's worth bearing in mind this is not unique. I mean, if you think about it, The politicians who had learnt their trade with the idea that Louis XIV was the absolute threat to Europe, which might or might not have seemed perceptive from the late 1670s to the mid-1700s, then had to adjust themselves uh, to a situation in which France becomes dramatically weaker and in which, indeed, Um, In the late 1710s, 1720s, um, early 1730s, it is Austria that appears to be in the ascendant. So I think this is not new, but I think think, um, one of the points that you expect of a politician who holds office is to try and respond to changing circumstances. Um, But on the other hand, some do that better than others.
1: Uh, How common at that time, within the political class, was what we, in retrospect, characterize as George III's and Lord North's mistaken view of how to deal with the American colonies?
0: Well, I think, first of all, in allowing for an analysis of George III's views, we have to accept that the nature of the crisis in America was very unclear. It was unclear initially that it would lead to significant violence in Massachusetts. Secondly, it was unclear that that would extend across the 13 colonies. Thirdly, it was unclear that it would lead to a demand for independence fourthly it was unclear that this demand would be sustained and fifthly it was unclear that when the British sent a large army out in 1776 uh, with instructions to both defeat the Americans and negotiate with them it was unclear that that would not succeed in that double task so it's it, you know one has to make allowances um, nevertheless I think what one can fairly say is that um, there was an unwillingness or a reluctance on the part of some uh, to fight the Americans. There was an excellent book by the American scholar James Bradley on petitioning at the outset of the war, in which it shows a large number of British people signed petitions saying they didn't want to fight the Americans. But at the same time, the government ha- has, or well, seems to have, the majority of opinion as measured by both um, support in Parliament and also Uh, success in the 1780 general election and one could argue that the americans as it were become more unpopular or the american patriots become more unpopular from 1778 because by allying with the french they make it appear to be a war of survival for britain so from that stage onwards i would say that george's view um, is more strongly held than it had been held earlier
1: Uh, was the British failure in the American Revolutionary War a matter of uh, failed strategy or failed tactics, or perhaps both?
0: I think the British um, failure in the American War of Independence, and as you may know, I've written separately on that in military history terms, I think it's more a question of a difficulty in moving from output to outcome. Output, you conquer territory as indeed they could do. They captured New York, they captured Charleston, they captured Savannah, uh, and beat your opponents. And Sometimes they lost, sometimes they won. I mean, um, so they could do that. Um, so the problem was to meet for, move from that to outcome, which was persuading the Americans to negotiate an end to the war. And I don't think that that linkage was clear-cut. I do think that it in part was contingent, you know, there's the argument that the Americans would never treat, which would never negotiate, which was Benjamin Franklin's argument, but of course as was shown um, with Charleston's surrender in 1780 and then subsequently low low country, South Carolina coming back to its allegiance um, in practice, military uh, victory for the British could deliver a verdict Um, so I'm not sure how clear-cut one could say the situation is. By the beginning of 1781, neither side is winning. Both sides are playing for higher stakes. And in that sense, the war is becoming riskier for both. Um, And then you get, as you know, um, what plays out the folly of Cornwallis basing himself. in an isolated position on the Chesapeake at uh, Yorktown, the failure to relieve him. Those were both serious, but ultimately they were only serious because they led to the fall of the Lord North Government and enough parliamentarians said, that's it, chaps, we've had enough. Now let's get rid of this war because we want to get on with the real war which we need to deal with, which is the French. Um, So in a way, one has to play it through the contingency element and not assume that it was necessarily foredoomed to failure.
1: Why do you say that, quote, the qualified francophilia that Shelburne offered uh, seemed problematic, unquote, circa 1783?
0: I think francophilia, which a number of British politicians tried in the second half of the century, trying on a modus vivendi um, with the French, had two fundamental flaws, one on each side of the channel. The flaw on the French side was a simple one. You were putting your credit on particular French ministries it, or ministers. If those ministers go, that's it. System changes. So that was a real problem. That, In other words, any support for it in France was going to be uh, transient or unstable absolutely the case. On the British side, the problem was that it was very difficult to make it domestically attractive. Not impossible. Pitt the Younger gets through his commercial treaty with France, despite Charles James Fox warning the House of Commons that France is a hereditary enemy, etc. So it's not impossible, but it's very difficult.
1: You're right at the end of the book that Britain ended the period covered in a much better position quote both in absolute and relative terms unquote than had been expected in 1783 how can how can one explain this surprising result
0: yes i'm looking there at the period 1783 to 1790 and i think it's fair to say that britain having done badly in the war won it won the peace because it split the alliance against it essentially the americans ratted on the french And the French, and the Spaniards, and the French then ratted on the Spaniards. So you end the war without the alliance between the major powers that had fought the British. That was point one. Two, um, the British held on to much of their empire, not all of it. Three, after the war, there was, under Pitt the Younger, um, a successful financial recovery and a stabilization of British politics. Again, chance plays a role getting through the Regency crisis of George III's illness in 1787-88. to But on top of that, France itself, Britain's major opponent, falls into political chaos. It does badly in the Dutch crisis of 1787. It moves into a revolutionary scenario. And in relative terms, Britain is much stronger. And in absolute terms, it's also stronger because its economy is improving enormously, um, as Thomas Jefferson noticed when he visited Britain.
1: If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be?
0: I would argue the very great importance of understanding foreign policy as part of strategy and strategy as part of foreign policy. To treat them separately, I think, means that you have a failure in both. But each of them needs to be treated, as you correctly argue, in terms in part of deep history and in terms in part of the relationship between deep history and domestic politics.
1: On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Thank thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black.
0: Thank you very much.